Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 11, Poverty in Education with Professor David Egan. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. For us, this is our first episode recorded in the new year. So um, it's probably not Happy New Year to you all, but it is to our guest. So I'm going to say a very warm welcome and Happy New Year to Professor David Egan. Welcome to our podcast. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Bloody know with that to a pub. Um, and this is David's sort of inaugural appearance on our podcast and we're going to be looking in this episode at the sort of very important but very comprehensive and, and all-encompassing issue of poverty and disadvantage in education and I was really keen to get you on David because you will remember you used to deliver a lead lecture to our Teach First cohorts um, and at the centre of the Teach First mission and charity is this commitment to social justice and to narrowing the poverty gap and I found that lecture particularly fascinating and I know that the students did too so we're going to try and distill some of that you know in this conversation but we think that probably the first thing for you to do with your research background um, and experience and knowledge in this field is to sort of try and paint us a picture of what poverty and disadvantage actually looks like on the ground in education in Wales. Yeah, well, th- thanks for the opportunity, first of all, to participate in the podcast. It, it's a bleak picture, really, isn't it? Because, you know, I would have been saying perhaps six months ago that a third of our children uh, actually live in poverty in Wales, but it's more like 40% now, we think. And I think the impact of the pandemic and the cost of living crisis that we're living through currently means that the figure is as high as that. And people then say to me, well, what does that mean? when you say something as dire as 40% of our children living in child poverty. And, I mean, it's an official calculation. I mean, the way the sum goes is that you say, right, what's the average income going into a household in the UK? And if the average income going into a household is below 60% of that median, then officially that family is living in poverty and the children who live in that home are living in child poverty. So that's how we get to that. It's it's a relative thing. It's not an absolute thing. We're not saying that they're living in poverty comparable, as it were, to that of developing countries. But nevertheless, within our own country, within Wales, within the UK, the fact of the matter is that 40% now we think of our young people in Wales live actually in in child poverty. So that's the extent of this issue. Mm. And it strikes me and it struck me in that lecture that you can live in sort of fairly close geographical places in Cardiff, but the picture be very different for different sort of areas. Are you able to sort of give us an indication of not necessarily the specific statistics, but how sort of individual schools and the sort of challenges that they face depending on where they might be geographically in Wales? Yeah, well, the demography of poverty, again, is also a factor. I mean, here we are, we're in Kincoid, we're in officially the most advantaged, privileged part of Wales, because that's the case, you know. You can jump on a on a bus, you can jump on the Cardiff Met Rider outside here, and you can travel 
to another part of this city that will be one of the most disadvantaged communities in Wales. So even within a great city like Cardiff, you have that kind of varied demography. But of course, you have that across Wales. So the post-industrial parts of Wales, the South Wales Valley area where I come from, of course, will be one of the most socio-economically disadvantaged parts of Wales. But we also have rural poverty. Director of Education in Powys pointed out to me recently, you know, that um, a third of the wards in Powys have the majority of the population living in poverty. Now, people don't think when they drive through the beautiful Brecon Beacons that they are areas of poverty comparable, if you like, to the South Wales Valleys where that, or parts of Cardiff where that poverty is visible, but nevertheless it's there. So the demography of poverty in Wales is quite interesting as well. And in terms of what that then looks like in the classroom for our pupils, are there kind of common features, common barriers to learning that might affect those in the post-industrial areas as well as the rural areas? And are there very specific barriers that might differ between places that are geographically quite close together? Yeah, I think what we can say is that living in poverty, coming from child poverty, will have three types of kind of impact upon you. Now, that, again, will vary dependent upon the demography, but, I mean, those three effects will be fairly general. So, in the first case, I mean, that affects your kind of well-being as, as, an, as a child, as an individual, and it may well affect your health as well. In fact, it often has an association with health as well as well-being. And so, if you look at the kind of remarkable work that... Uh, organisations like uh, Children in Wales, Save the Children, the Child Poverty Action Group too, and their kind of focus on the cost of the school day. They've been doing some very, very interesting work now here in Cardiff, but also in other local authority areas in Wales, where, you know, for those children, the whole process of going to school, coming out of child poverty, is in itself has a cost. It has a cost to them, their health and their well-being and so forth. So that aspect, if you like, of coming from poverty in terms of what that means for you as a child, as a pupil within the education system in Wales is the first thing. Secondly, there's much more to say on this, it impacts upon your attainment and what you will achieve within education. And, you know, there'll be more to say about that, I'm sure, as we go along. Thirdly, it will have, unfortunately, a lifelong learning impact upon you, because if you don't do well in education, then what you bring to education in terms of coming from that background of poverty is likely to endure beyond education and have that kind of lifetime effect on you and your future families. Thinking about the South Wales Valleys uh, specifically, I mean, going back 100, 150 years, there was a sort of tradition, wasn't there, in those very hard lives that they had back in the, back in the industrial heyday of self-improvement education as being a way to to escape in some ways those very very difficult conditions around the the sort of tail end of the 19th century but now post-industrial we have multi-generational unemployment Do, do you think there are entrenched attitudes that education is pointless as some people tend to characterize the valleys I think it's 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 a, it's a very interesting area, isn't it? And I think you know there's there's a need, as it were, not to look at the past in any kind of way through rose-tinted spectacles. I mean, I 
from the South Wales Valleys. I started my career in education as a secondary school history teacher in 1976 um, at what is now Triorchy Comprehensive School. When I started that career, 20% of young people within the education system were heading for hopefully O-level, for a qualification that would give them the chance to progress in the way that we've been able to progress in education on to A-level, possibly to university, possibly then to good careers, to good futures. 40% of youngsters at that time were being prepared to sit what was a fairly new examination, which was the CSE, the Certificate of Secondary Education. And the idea was that somehow that would give them some basic qualifications that would enable them to proceed into the workforce um, and that they would find reasonably well-paid jobs and that would be their futures. 40% of young people were regarded as non-examinable. Non-examinable. The sooner that they could leave school, the better really in a sense. And they would move, hopefully, into employment in unskilled jobs and try and keep themselves above the poverty line. Now, you know, we've changed, things have changed over that period of time, and yet we still have a group of pupils who leave school at the age of 16 without five good GCSEs and include English and mathematics. So we have a greater expectation now that they will get qualifications, and that's been obviously a very positive thing over that period of time. But we still have a situation where a large number of them, simply because of the background they come from, will not leave school with a qualification that will enable them to be as that 40% <laughs> were, if you see where my maths are, back 40 years ago, where they're going to be, if they're in employment at all, in the gig economy, in insecure jobs, that will enable, not enable them to move out of poverty. So time moves on, and yet the issues, unfortunately, remain the same. But your background tends to dictate what you will achieve through education. Of course, there are some young people who, who break the mold, who buck the trend. You know, we must remember that. There is a kind of glass that's nearly half full, you know. But for a significant part of our population, of our school population, then education is not going to enable them to achieve their aspirations, their ambitions, their potential, I believe, and enable them and their future families to be removed from poverty. And that's got to be something that's of, you know, considerable concern to us. And before we get into the sort of nitty gritty of how classroom teachers who are, you could argue, sort of one of the biggest influential figures on the education and school lives of children who are living in poverty outcomes you could argue how do we identify and how do they identify these individual pupils I know that you talked a lot in the lead lecture about the sort of pros and cons of those who are EFSM eligible for free school meals? Is that a useful measure? And also, are there any concerns that you found in the research that you've done or just more generally about sort of myths and misconceptions that even when you, we've identified those individuals could potentially get in the way of us being able to, as classroom teachers, develop these learners? I think the identification is interesting and it's a movable feast. I mean, 
Up to now, we've done that through, as you say, the eligibility to free school meals. So if the income coming into a household is low, then that eligibility for a free school meal will be there. And that's been the kind of traditional indicator of poverty that we've been using for some time now. Now, it's not been a perfect indicator. Any head teacher will tell you, quite a lot of teachers will tell you that they know of children who come from very, very disadvantaged backgrounds where that eligibility for some reason or another doesn't exist. I think we're talking about that being on the margins. And I think we're talking about free school meals being the best indicator we have, not a perfect indicator, but the best indicator we have. However, it's very much changing because now we have uh, the current Welsh Government committed to giving all primary pupils an entitlement to a free school meal. The debate will start, therefore, about secondary in future, that's for sure. And so we're moving to a situation now where we're going to have to think a lot harder about what indicators we actually do use for pupils who are coming from our most disadvantaged kind of backgrounds. So that's a changing situation. We are where we are. And I think the indicator that we've got, not perfect, has been as uh, as good as any that uh, we can have. In relation to perceptions, I think there's always that feeling that somehow, particularly as children get older, that there's a stigma about that eligibility to free school meals. I think schools are much better now than they used to be about avoiding that stigmatization. Uh, again, when I was a teacher, it was quite common to see children in one queue for their free school meals ticket and children in another queue because they didn't have a free school meals ticket. So that stigmatization was very apparent and it was not something that uh, schools or teachers were very sensitive about at all. Young people, I'm sure, were far more sensitive about it. I think often there are perceptions, and I don't want to overstate this or understate it, that somehow because a child is from that background, then they, their parents, are going to lack kind of ambition and aspirations. Most of the evidence that we have, most of the research studies that have taken place in this area indicate that that's not the case. The parents, though they may themselves have not done well in education um, and are living in poverty, will have very high aspirations for their children. That Those children themselves will have high aspirations. What tends to happen, sadly, is as they get older, those aspirations wane. As they see themselves not progressing well in education, then their aspirations seem to dip. And I think, again, that's something that uh, has to be part of the consideration we give here to how we deal with these issues. How can we keep, as it were, those aspirations high? And so I think it's important at the moment that the Welsh Government is talking about high standards and aspirations for all, because the two things need to sit alongside each other. All of us around the table are teachers in some way, shape or form. And I suppose we all, we all hear these stories in the news, don't we, about uh, teachers um, buying food for pupils, washing pupils' clothes, um, helping families access grants for kitchen equipment and that kind of thing, you know, washing machines. And the one sort of reaction you can have is is what heroes teachers are. And the other reaction you can have is... What a savage indictment of society that they're having to do it. And I suppose both of those things can be true simultaneously. There might be those who are kind of interested, thinking about our students now, you know, looking forward to going in and helping in, in a really holistic way and helping people out. And there are going to be other people who are saying, no, I'm a teacher. I want to draw the line here. I'm a teacher. I mean, do, do you have a sense with your experience of where the line is drawn between 
school as a as an education institution and school as something that's plugging a gap perhaps elsewhere in society and to what extent it should or shouldn't I think it's a really important consideration, Tom, you know? I mean, I think it's back in a sense to what do we do confronted by the stark reality of 40% of our young people living in, 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 in relative poverty? Well, of course, you want to mitigate that. Teachers, schools want to mitigate the impact and the effects of that as people outside of schools will want to do that. And so all the things that you talked about Ensuring that the health and well-being of those children is, 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 is important it has to be an important part of that mitigation. And yet, it's back to your point really about what is education for. If education is to be, as it ought to be, a route out of poverty, a route to fulfilling your ambitions and aspirations, then of course what teachers need to focus upon as well is how can we keep those aspirations high? How can we be doing the right things pedagogically to ensure that those children confronted by the challenges that they face can achieve their potential? And the two things, I think, have to sit alongside each other. You know, it has to be how can schools, how can teachers most effectively work as part of a wider community to look out for children to mitigate the impact that poverty has upon them. But how can they, just as importantly, perhaps some would say more importantly, ensure that they achieve their potential, they achieve the highest possible attainment so they can try to remove themselves in future and their families from poverty. And I think the two things need to sit alongside each other. Bringing it back now to the classroom practitioner, I wouldn't want to put you on the spot, but I just wonder, is there any evidence to suggest that the quality of the classroom teacher has an impact on pupils who are living in poverty, in particular, at, you know, trying to address the poverty gap? Does Should we be prioritising our best teachers for those pupils? Absolutely. The evidence is quite clear. The research evidence is quite clear. And it, it, it again, it goes like this, doesn't it? Children spend 12% of their waking time in school. 12% of their waking time. That 12%, however, is hugely important in terms of the impact that that has upon them in terms of attainment, in terms of what they achieve through education. And what you want, therefore, children from the most disadvantaged context to have is to have the very best quality teaching they can have within that time. Now, you know, this, this isn't about trying in any kind of way to talk teachers down or to beat teachers up, but about actually saying, as researchers pointed to for a long period of time now, that those children, more than any other children, need the very best quality teaching. And so high quality teaching, ensuring that those children can enjoy high quality teaching has to be an important part of what we're trying to do in this space. Absolutely. So would is, is that leading us logically to the idea of um, a different pay scale for teachers in disadvantaged schools or the idea of a sort of centralised deployment of, of teachers into those schools or perhaps even a, a different qualification for those teachers? 
I think there's two things. I think one is ensuring that the teachers that we have, Professor Dylan Williams has always argued that uh, when it comes to the quality of teaching, you should love the one you're with. <laughs> First of all, ensure that those teachers that you have already within the workforce pedagogically know what are the right things to do from the research evidence in terms of maximizing what they do in terms of teaching quality with those young people. And perhaps you'll ask me to say something a bit more about that because I think that's an, an important thing to talk about. By the same token, you may want to ensure that you get your very best quality teachers, you know, that you try as, as it were to engineer the system a bit. I mean, that's what Teach First is trying to do. And that you might, as I say, engineer the system to ensure that the high quality teachers that you've got within the system are encouraged to go to where they're needed the most. So I think it's about trying to raise the quality of teaching full stop, because a rising tide raises all ships. You know, if we can improve the quality of teaching, then all pupils will benefit and those who are the most disadvantaged and who need that high quality teaching the most will will be part of that, that uh, raising of standards. But also, given the circumstances we find ourselves in at the moment where, you know, we know that there is a shortage of secondary teachers, there is there are huge problems, particularly in subject, sub subject areas, and in some parts of the system, like the Welsh medium context, that actually finding teachers at the moment. And so, you know, we may need in the short term to think about ways in which we can encourage, induce people to go to where they are needed the most. Both things, I think, uh, should be in play. You're absolutely right. I'm I'm really keen to dig into something you've said more than once now about the sort of pedagogical approaches that teachers are using that sort of mark them out as being expert practitioners in the classroom. But I wondered, was there anything specific that's come up in your research? And maybe this might be, I know we're moving away from phases in Wales now, but I'm going to use old terminology and say phase specific or more general, specifically for pupils who are living in poverty. And I, acknowledging that it's intersectional, these might be pupils who are living in poverty, but also experiencing, have additional learning needs, etc. But are there any sort of areas of practice that these teachers can work on that would be of benefit? Yeah, well, again, I think, you know, as, as a researcher, I, I turn to the research evidence. And uh, I mean, a pretty authoritative area of research evidence is the work that the Education Endowment Foundation has done and their learning and t teaching toolkit, which draws down from other kind of meta reviews that have been done about high quality teaching, the work of John Hattie, mm -hmm. Professor Steve Higgins at Durham University, all of those have contributed in a sense to what uh, the Education Endowment Foundation has captured within the learning and teaching toolkit. And that learning and teaching toolkit is something again, that uh, signals to teachers what works with all pupils, but it also signals what is particularly effective with the most disadvantaged pupils. And it points to three areas. It points, first of all, to language development, right? That uh, the importance of language development from an early age and throughout the kind of lifespan within education, you know, continuously trying to develop the language skills of those pupils is so important because that gives them access then 
to the curriculum. It gives them access to the high quality learning and teaching that we want them to enjoy. If they haven't got those language skills, they're on the back foot. And what early years teachers will tell you um, is from the time they enter nursery and reception, those children often have much lower vocabulary and much, uh, much you know, held back kind of oral skills. And so continuously trying to work on that area is the first thing, and that is important. The second thing is metacognition or thinking skills, if you prefer to call it thinking skills. But again, it's something almost that children from more privileged backgrounds all the time have been stimulated to do, to develop their thinking skills in school and out of school. Focusing on thinking skills, therefore, and developing those thinking skills for our most disadvantaged pupils, we know is an important thing to do. And then the third aspect, there is a digital aspect to all of this as well. And I think that kind of works through each of these things. But the third aspect is self-regulation. Self-regulation, again, is learning how to learn. You know, having that kind of very rich feedback that you would hope to get from a teacher, that you get from the interaction of parents in in more privileged contexts where because those parents themselves have done well in education, they could help their children to learn. And that self-regulation, knowing how to learn, is often something that is deficient, as it were, in children who don't come from those kind of enriched backgrounds that needs to be part of that pedagogy. So those things are important for all pupils, are important skills, therefore, for all teachers to concentrate upon. But we know they are particularly important for the most disadvantaged and those who come from those backgrounds. So that pedagogy, I think, you know, is really important. Compulsory curriculum for Wales question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, compulsory, horribly controversial question, I suspect, as well. Um, we went and spoke to Jess Danham the other day, who works in a school in a socioeconomically deprived part of South Wales, about her work. And we ended up sort of talking about the, the process of putting curriculum for Wales together and that sort of slight sense of, oh, you know, it, it'll all be fine, co-construct it, you know, let's not have any any prescription from above. And, and she sort of described it as it feels a lot more high stakes for socioeconomically deprived pupils than that you know that they only get one chance so it won't be all right if we get it wrong we've spoken to lucy crean the author who said she fears that it, it might actually widen the gap uh, you know increase inequity and i mean i was reading some some around some basil bernstein stuff yesterday about his critique of progressive versus traditionalist education and basically kind of saying well it's it's an awfully middle class sort of thing to think that that's going to be doing good for the pupils because it actually it's it's about a, creating a comfortable place it's very comfortable for middle class pupils you know talking in the way that they talk at home and all of that is it a worry that curriculum for wales as it is currently kind of being rolled out in this very co-constructed very bottom-up way is it going to entrench or even widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots or are you less worried than that? It's a really important question, isn't it? I mean, you know, when you think of the kind of period that we're, 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 we're going through, it's, it's a really important question because you've got the current education minister saying two very big things. One, we will press ahead with the curriculum for Wales. You know, he inherited that from the previous education minister and he's determined to press ahead with that. You've also got him saying, my top priority in education is to reduce the impact of poverty on attainment. So the two things have to speak to each other. 
I'm a massive fan of the new Crooken for Wales. I think it's important to say that up front. I'm a massive fan of it. And as you know, um, I've been involved in, 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 in helping to develop that curriculum, particularly through the work of the pioneer schools in relation to professional learning and the NPEP programme, which we were heavily involved in here at Cardiff Met. So hugely positive about the new curriculum. When you start talking about the things that we're focusing on in this conversation, then the impact of the curriculum traditionally would not usually be in your top 10. So we've talked about learning and teaching and pedagogy. That's always going to be very high up. We've not yet talked about community-focused schools, and that's going to be very high up as well, and it's very high up in our agenda in Wales. Then you start talking about leadership. Then you'd be talking about health and well-being. You know, you'd be working your way through what we regard in the work that I've been doing in Welsh Government over the last couple of years, the eight key areas. Curriculum wouldn't usually be one of those areas. In other words, curriculum is a nice to have in this space, but it's not a necessary to have. Outstanding learning and teaching will use any curriculum to motivate young people, to help them achieve their potential, to help them achieve their aspirations. So I think we have to get that right. The journey we're on is the right journey. The enthusiasm there is for the Crickham of Wales, I think, is absolutely right. But it will be the learning and teaching that underpins that curriculum that will make the difference. And I think it will be the extent to which that curriculum becomes part of this wider community-focused schools dimension of our work in Wales that really will be critical here. So, of course, the curriculum is a part to play. We think it has a really important part to play, but we've got to make that happen. We can't just think that somehow... It's not as if the curriculum is kind of the cavalry coming over the mountain. Nobody, I think, thinks that at all. And I've been working with Lucy over the last 18 months, and I think, yes, I'm of the same mindset as her, that what we have to do there, for example, is ensure that we get that progression that has always bedeviled us between primary and secondary, between what is currently key stage two and key stage three, to ensure that there isn't that, you know, we've got to work in a cluster type environment to ensure that there is joint curriculum planning so we don't get children falling away in their progression in the movement from the primary to the secondary phase. We've got to guard against the possibilities that the curriculum could be a negative factor here. We've got to use that opportunity of having health and well-being within the curriculum to ensure that that brings some of the kind of issues that we've talked about around mitigation, around the cost of the school day. We've got to bring those to the forefront, as it were, of pupil experience. All those things present us with opportunity. So there's a danger. Of course there's a danger that having that change might actually make things worse for our most disadvantaged pupils. I mean, let me put it like this and be enough said when I've said this. The biggest concern that we have in the Welsh education system at the moment is trying to get back children to school post-COVID. Schools are facing major attendance problems, secondary more than primary, secondary year 10 year 11 more than year 7 disadvantaged pupils more than advantaged pupils so why is it that we're not persuading those year 10s and year 11s who were year 8s and year 9s when the pandemic first started not to come back to school 
I think a lot of it is because of the offer, in a sense, that was being made to them, you know? You know, that it's not attractive enough. So having a new curriculum, I think, is the right thing to do. Having something that hopefully will excite them and their teachers far more, but it will only be the learning and teaching that brings that curriculum to life. And it will only be the other factors, like the community dimension of schools, that will really enable us to bring the curriculum to the fulfilment that we wanted to have. So it's a long answer, but I think it deserved a long answer because it's quite a complex area. Yeah, and it's, it is fascinating to hear you talk about curriculum in that way as, as being you know not within those eight key sort of levers. Although I, I, I mean, I'm a secondary practitioner at heart. I say this all the time on the podcast and I just wonder and I worry that if teaching and the quality of teachers is the thing that you know is 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 going to be one of the things that makes the difference is there a danger of subject specialism at secondary phase being eroded you know we hear particularly in the expressive arts area of learning experience of schools asking teachers to teach outside of their discipline and therefore in if we look at it through a teaching and learning lens we look at the teacher and the quality of teaching is there a potentially a problem that we're going to have and have to navigate down the road you know even if we get the curriculum bit right is there a concern there about teacher expertise being eroded i don't know i mean i think i think this is a really difficult area um i was a history teacher i'm still passionate about the teaching of history and the study of history took me a while to become a fan of the humanities, A-O-L-E approach, but I am now a fan. I worked my way through that. I see no reason at all why the ambition that I have to give all young people an interest and excitement for history can't be continued through the kind of 5 to 14 age group such that they can be ready then to move on to GCSE and if they so choose a level and you know I think what we've got to do and these places initial teacher education has a key part to play to this we've got to I think get back to what is pedagogically important history is a great vehicle for language development it's a great vehicle for problem solving and therefore thinking skills it's a great vehicle for learning how to learn. So those three pedagogical areas that I think are so critical that I've talked about earlier on can be really well realized through top quality teaching of history within and as part of the humanities AOLE. And I think it's back to that focus on pedagogy. Now that is not to deny that we will want to recruit people to places like this, the schools will want to recruit to people who then can be really strong specialists at GCSE and A-level in teaching their subject area. So I think the onus will come upon places like this and then upon induction, you know, and I think all the kind of discussions about induction are really important here, that we shouldn't be seeing the development of teachers as a kind of one-year or a three-year journey in places like Cardiff Met, but rather as being a much more prolonged journey through into induction and then hopefully an opportunity to do a master's and so forth. And within all of that, we've got to get that situation that you raise, Emma, right. 
Yeah. So again, it's a worry, it's a concern, but I think we have to really focus upon what pedagogically is important for young people. Just joining some dots now and thinking on my feet about some things you said. I'm just picking up that that really interesting point you made a minute ago about the fact that the for some of these pupils, particularly those living in, in the most deprived areas, the offer in school is not attractive to them. Also picking up the, the point you rightly made, which is that we are struggling to recruit to the profession at the moment. And I'm sort of mixing that up in my mind with a lot of the, the things we hear at the moment again rightly about the lack of diversity within the teaching profession and it's often framed in terms of the fact that black and ethnic minority pupils don't see teachers who look like them and I I find myself thinking do pupils living in socioeconomically deprived areas do they see teachers who have come from where they are sufficiently is are we are we diverse enough in that dimension and if not does it matter and if it does matter what should we do about it you know i think it's an interesting area um something i might you know touch upon before we finish i think it's an interesting area of one of those things where we don't know really i mean do we do we think that young people 15 16 in some of the more challenging circumstances, think, well, why do I want to be like these people in front of me? You know, they come from a different milieu, different background to me. They speak a different language. You know, do we really help them to be aspirational? I mean, I did a piece of work with colleagues from here a few years ago now where we looked at kind of, you know, graduate progression into um, various occupations, including the teaching profession. We did this work for the Education Workforce Council. And one of the researchers, actually, we were working with colleagues from Cardiff University, Emma Jane Milton, she went off and interviewed undergraduates in Cardiff University. And it was really quite striking just what their kind of attitude was to teaching and that they picked up so much of that attitude from the teachers who had taught them, you know, that they felt that they weren't encouraged to think about teaching they were picking up negative vibes about teaching. Now, if that's the more aspirational, then think about what the, the less aspirational, the less academically motivated they're picking up. So I think it's probably something where we need a bit of an honesty check. It's, it's, it's a topic, I think, that for research, for sure. I think the more general point, really, about how we motivate young people I pointed out earlier on that most of the studies that have been done by people like Paul Gregg from Bath University about aspiration show that primary school pupils, whatever their backgrounds, tend to be highly aspirational, highly ambitious. And, you know, most primary teachers will tell you how wonderful that is, you know, that they aspire to be all sorts of things, you know. That tends, we know, to fall away in the latter primary years. Interesting, isn't it, that in England last week they announced that they're going to be increasing careers work focused on the latter years of primary education, you know, keeping keeping those kind of aspirations high. But they tend to fall away in the secondary years. Now, why is that? Is it because the offer that we're making them? Because, you know, they don't see roots, as it were, you know, for them into their futures. I mean, clearly... There's a mismatch there between what young people, many of them, are looking for. It's something that 
a secondary head teacher said to me a few years ago now, the only offer we have in many ways for our key stage three pupils, and he was talking from the point of view of being a secondary head teacher of a school in quite a disadvantaged area is go to university. That's the only offer that we have. We don't have a buoyant economy any longer in this area in the way we used to have said, you know, back to my time when I started teaching, well, if you don't do so well in education, then if you do reasonably well, you might be able to get an apprenticeship in a local industry. If you don't do so well, at least there'll be a job there for you, although it'll be unskilled, you know. We don't have that offer any longer, simply because the economy has changed in the way that it has. And the only offer we have now is go to university. Well, for all the young people, that's not either something that they aspire to do or that they think they're capable of. And so I think there is a whole kind of issue about what we're offering pupils from the top end of primary into secondary. I think there's also an issue about how we're trying to support them in terms of raising their aspirations. We have real concerns about the quality of careers advice that is offered to young people in our secondary schools and who's offering it. Is it really coming from people who know and understand, you know, our economy and what opportunities there are in employment? Because often it's something that's landed on a particular teacher who might not have the background or expertise in that area. You know, there's that whole issue, which again, uh, we've worked very strongly into uh, the policy developments that now are taking place in Wales about making sure that we support young people to keep their aspirations high through giving them the quality advice and developing the relationships that they will need. I remember being really struck by a bit of uh, Jess Danham's research work before we interviewed her when I read it, you know, that the, there was this really patronising idea in a way that, oh, you know, get an education, you'll be able to get out of here. And actually, if they don't want to get out of there, then they're going to assume that that means they don't need an education, but also equally that, that there is not going to get any better if anyone who does OK for themselves promptly gets out of it. It's back again, I think, Tom, to this community dimension of things, you see, and I've been I've been trying on a few occasions now to work my way into this, sort of, because, you know, I think what we're trying to do currently, this is not a new issue. It's not that, you know, we haven't been trying to confront this issue for some time about the impact that poverty has on attainment in Wales. I mean, it's been a constant issue for the whole period of devolution, for example, but there's now this kind of refreshed kind of focus upon it. A minister of education who sees it as being a priority for him and his government a government that is focusing very strongly on that so we're back having a really strong look at it again and i think that what we're realizing is that there are no silver bullets had there been any silver bullets we'd have fired those a long time ago you know this is a really difficult issue you know what estin is saying is that we've made very little progress in narrowing the attainment gap at secondary level, particularly at GCSE over the last decade. We had a very scary report back in July from the Education Policy Institute that did what generally these days we don't do in Wales, and that is compare ourselves with England, because we've said, well, no, we're different. We've gone on a different trajectory, but we still have GCSE still of GCSE, so there is a point of comparison, even though GCSEs are very different in England and Wales. But what Education Policy Institute did was to compare, and they put all sorts of kind of riders into their comparison, to compare the attainment gap at GCSE 
in England and Wales. And the outcomes were, were scary because what they showed was that there's still a huge gap between Wales and England, even when you compare areas like for like. So if you compare the northeast of England or if you look at the former Yorkshire coalfields and compare them to Wales, there is a very big divide between the extent to which they've narrowed, and they're still trying to narrow their attainment gap, but they've narrowed it much more significantly than we have in Wales. And the really difficult comparison they made there was to say, well, where's the, the, the worst performing local authority in England of narrowing that gap? Happened to be Blackpool, former seaside resort, all the issues that often go along with that. We had seven local authorities in Wales that were performing below Blackpool. So the seven lowest performing local authorities in England and Wales. And we didn't have a single local authority that would be more than mid-table in that comparison. So, you know, these are very, very stark comparisons. There are no silver bullets. And yet, what I think we're now realising are two things. One, we've got to take a whole system approach to this. We've got to start very early and we've got to keep on working at this beyond post-16, you know. It's got to be about the lifelong learning journey, not giving up on young people at any point in time, but keeping them on that journey. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this is much about, particularly in our most disadvantaged areas, about the community dimension of schooling as it is about the learning and teaching that goes on within schools. And so the two major things that we think we should focus upon is one, getting that learning and teaching right, getting that high quality teaching right within our new exciting curriculum and getting the teachers that we need, all the things we've talked about. But the second dimension that we haven't talked much about is that community focused school dimension ensuring that in particular for all schools particularly in our most disadvantaged contexts that there is very strong engagement with parents and families in the learning process in all sorts of ways seeing the schools as being community hubs not spending millions and millions and millions on opening these new buildings and then locking them up at four o'clock but actually them being part an integral part of their community so they can be used for music, for drama, for adult education, for sport, for all the things that we would want the community to see them as being a resource for, so that in a sense they are an integral part of the community. And then thirdly, very much on the kind of Scandinavian model, that they become community hubs, that whatever the needs of the child, whether it be the needs of what we would regard as being children's services or the health service, all of those are integrated around the school. And so that as the children's commissioner, outgoing children's commissioner, Sally Holland was, was, was fond of saying, no closed doors to children. So if their needs are much more on the well-being side, they can access those needs on the same site as they can access their pedagogical needs, you know, that they are integrated communities, very much like in Scandinavia or other nations like Estonia that have come on leaps and bounds in this area in recent years. So those aspects of community, I mean, the big idea in Welsh education at the moment, I think is community focused schools. And 
Estin, to be fair to them, have been saying this for the last 20 years, that where schools make the biggest difference in this area of tackling the impact of poverty, they get the learning and teaching right. And then they reach out to families and communities. Primary schools generally are better at doing that than secondary schools. And there are reasons for that. But I think now we are on that journey in Wales to make community schooling a really critical part of what we're trying to do here. And in your opinion, where does ITE sit in this agenda? And particularly for a student teacher starting out who, you know, in the first instance, what we know from our own research and from other researchers out there is that student teacher is very much concerned about what they're doing in their classroom, what's going on immediately in front of them. So how do we make sure that our curriculum and the sort of teaching and, and learning experiences that we give to our student teachers, and as you said, the, the early career teachers that come afterwards, get what they need to have that sort of community focus and an understanding of what their role is as a classroom teacher, but also within that community-focused school agenda? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think what we... It's, it's the analogy that, you know, we use so often, isn't it, that what we try and do, even within a three-year undergraduate program that prepares you to be a teacher, let alone a one-year program. Uh, my stepson is, is, uh, is doing the PGC Primary here at the moment, you know, and uh, it is about getting many gallons into a pint pot. And that's what we're trying to do. And so it becomes the language of priorities, doesn't it? You know, uh, when what we're asking people to do here, I mean, after all, you know, a 36-week course, you're 12 weeks in the university, you're 60 days in the university, you know, and the rest of the time you're in school. And quite rightly, when you're in school, you're dealing with all the practicalities of understanding how teaching operates on the ground. You know, it's very difficult to think that something as really fundamentally important as this will get the attention that it deserves, because there will be other things. You know, there will be colleagues in this building who will say, well, no, it's really important that they focus on this, or they focus on that. And all of those things deserve a hearing. So I think it's time that we had a bit of a think about this. And the way that, um, yes, as part of this reaccreditation process, that I think, and I think, I think this is what the minister thinks we should be doing about this, is saying, right, over the period of time, when they're in initial teacher education, whether it be three years or whether it be a year on a PGC, and I still think it's a tough ask, then they should gain an understanding of how it is that poverty impacts upon attainment and what are the key things, the things we've been talking about, you know, in a kind of holistic way, not in a silver bullet way, because there isn't a silver bullet. We can't give them silver bullets, unfortunately. <laughs> but in a holistic way, they, as part of this exciting opportunity they're going to have to go into the profession and make a difference that they can be thinking about and focused upon. And it's gaining that understanding, not dropping it in as a key lecture here mm -hmm. or a key seminar there or a module there, because I think that would just be counterproductive, mm -hmm. but rather trying to infuse it the whole kind of program mm. and I do think that means in a sense that we've got to educate our colleagues and we probably have to educate our partnership schools as well mm. you know I mean I always felt that when we did this kind of uh, and it's not something that I didn't say to Professor Furlong at the time 
there was always a danger that when we moved to the lead partnership school concept and we established the criteria for being a lead partnership school, that we would exclude a number of schools in the most socio-economically disadvantaged contexts who, considering the challenges they were facing, were doing really remarkable work, but weren't getting those best in excellence or uh, in the green category when we were doing categorization, the things that we used for the criteria, and that we are therefore in danger of denying our student teachers the opportunity to work in those contexts. Now, I don't think that's totally been the case, mm. but I think it's something that needs to be revisited. You know, I would want a student teacher here to have an opportunity as part of this kind of whole course approach, as it were, to go to a school that is probably treading water, managing just as it were to keep itself above the line, but to see the remarkable things that they're doing mm, mm. against all the odds to achieve that, mm. if you see what I mean. Because I think there's as much value in that as there is to go to some of our top performing schools to see what it is that enables them to be such outstanding schools. I remember asking uh, our glorious Dean Julie Longville this question about should our student teachers actually be working and, and helping, you know, and, and, and giving, giving an extra pair of hands and learning about the realities in those most difficult, most deprived schools that perhaps, as you say, don't get the, the gold stars and the green bandings and all of that kind of thing. And she, she was very much of the opinion that they should. But then I suppose that leads me on to, the, to wonder... Do those schools get the credit they deserve? Because, you know, I often find that the real magic is happening in schools that people you know, out, out on the street, I suppose, would say, oh, gosh, no, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to go in there. And the schools that get all the, all the garlands and the accolades are probably starting considerably further down the track than those, those other schools. Do we need to look at the way that we actually assess or the way that we we, we describe schools such that that stuff gets more credit? I think there's two things here really, aren't there? And one is that um, if you value something, and it's the system, isn't it, that, 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 that decides in a sense upon the values you put on something. I mean, if you look, for example, examples I used there were kind of in gradings and Estin has moved away now from sharp grading so but when Estin gradings were in place excellent good satisfactory unsatisfactory whatever and when we were using that categorization system there was an inevitability about the schools that would get the excellent and the schools that would end up in the green categories were total inevitability you could measure those schools against their free school meals percentage almost perfectly there always would be schools that would buck the trend. Whether they'd be able to continue to buck the trend over a long period of time, because there's always that issue as well, is another matter. But there was almost an inevitability about that. So if you set things up, and I think the decision to move away from categorization is right on that basis. The decision to move away from that sharp grading that Estin were using is right, because that self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of it doesn't help. Whereas I'm always loath to name schools, and so I'm not going to. You know, I go to school. It's one of the things I missed about the COVID period because I always deprived myself that, you know, hardly a week would go by when I wasn't in a school somewhere. But 
I go to school sometimes that are never, ever going to get those excellent ratings, never, ever going to be in those or we're going to be in those green categories where I think what they're doing is absolutely remarkable. And we need to value that. In the same way, we need to value at the level of the individual, as the Director of Education for Wrexham said to me a while back, that she wants to value in her local authority, which is a fairly troubled local authority, she wants to value that child who gets the Oxbridge, you know, goes through Serin and gets the Oxbridge kind of entry as much as the child who gets the single level one NVQ, because that for them is achieving their potential. They all should be valued. And I think that's what we've got kind of wrong that we're trying to get right again now. Of course, we should value high academic success. But, haven't checked for a while now, but it's more well, it was more difficult to get a top-class apprenticeship with BT than it was to get an Oxford, Oxford uh, entry. You know, now we just need to kind of get that metric, I think, much, much clearer within our profession, within our system. And I think that's... And that takes me to another key area I think for this which is where we're just beginning some uh, research activity now that we've commissioned and that's around attainment grouping in Wales mm. because we've been very wary of confronting that kind of issue about the extent to which we allow setting to become again another self-fulfilling prophecy and it's not it used to be a time when you could say oh well that's what secondary schools do and it's their fault that crept into key stage two practice increasingly, you know? Now, I think it's something that, again, we've not had an honest conversation about in Wales, that, you know, children get labelled very early on as being in that bottom set for mathematics. Is it any surprise then that they don't end up getting a good mathematics outcome at GCSE? And so I think the whole issue of attainment grouping is part of that, that we... It goes back, doesn't it, to me entering the system in 1976. 20% go for the top prizes, 40% go for a prize, and 40% no prizes at all. We may have changed our way of thinking in terms of wanting all pupils to gain a qualification, but have we really changed our kind of values? I don't think so. David, we covered a lot of ground and I just wondered if, um, just in this final question before we get into our our regular short slots, if you could maybe sort of speak to our student teachers and NQTs, early career teachers who are listening right now and perhaps if they are feeling in any way sort of daunted by or dwarfed by this massive area that they know and feel compelled to to make their contribution to what practical steps can they take is it you know about improving their knowledge understanding something they can do in order to get their heads around this you mentioned the eef toolkit earlier on i, I would i would definitely advocate looking at that is there anything else that you would recommend no, I think all the things that you mentioned then are, are important. You know, I think it's, it is it is not being daunted about this. I mean, but seeing it as an opportunity, seeing it as a challenge, seeing it about it's something that um, when I was uh, head of school here, you know, the job that Julia Longville does now, I would, 
I would say, in welcoming students. You know, this is the most exciting profession to enter, but it's also the most challenging profession. And I think it's that kind of excitement, that challenge, those two things that sit alongside each other that you should relish. That, of course, you will have the opportunity to work with the brightest and the best people who are more intelligent than you are, who would achieve far more from education than you've ever achieved. You know, so it's having that excitement, but it's also the opportunity to take that child, that pupil who perhaps, you know, doesn't have confidence, doesn't feel that they have ability and persuade them, whether it's through being a primary teacher or secondary teacher with that greater focus on a subject area. Although I think increasingly, as I say, I think we should look, be looking to blur that uh, through our new curriculum and taking them on a journey that helps them to achieve their potential. That's a fantastic opportunity. But if you're going to do that, you can't hide away from the realities here. You've got to face, as it were, the challenges that I've outlined. You've got to believe. I mean, you quoted Basil Bernstein to me earlier on, Tom, Bernstein, of course, famously said, education can't compensate for society. Now, I think Bernstein was right about a lot of things, but if he really meant that, I'm not sure he did mean it in the way that it's being used. He was wrong. He was wrong. And I've said that. I've written a chapter in a book where I've said that I think, you know, education can compensate for society because we know that if you do the right things, if you have the right attitudinals, if you have the right pedagogy, if you believe very much in this community-based aspect of schooling and that it's important to work with parents and to work with other agencies as it is to work with children and your colleagues, then I think you can make a huge difference. And I'd be encouraging them to think along those lines. You know, if they believe that this is something that is daunting, that they should hide away from and have the least amount to do with, <laughs> which is an attitude within our profession, then I think they need to think very hard. Professor David Egan, that was a really great deep discussion um, with lots to think about, lots to talk about in future episodes if you'll come back. But before we let you off the hook, <laughs> we have got uh, these two short slots, something interesting, something to try. So tell me, what's something interesting that you've been sort of consuming of late that our listeners might find interesting? Well, I, I always go back to where I kind of start, really, which is my passion for for history and the study of history. I mean, most of the reading that I do outside of my research activity in education takes me back to reading kind of history. At the moment, I'm reading Margaret Macmillan's book again. It's the second time I've read it, and not not at the same time. I, but about five years ago, I read it for the first time. Ma Margaret Macmillan's book on Paris 1919, which is all about the Treaty of Versailles and the peace treaty at the end of uh, the First World War. And what really strikes me about that are three things. One, that academics are not always good at making their work accessible and interesting and attractive, but it's a fabulous read. You know, she takes this huge, vast amount of information. Margaret Mar 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 Millen, she's professor of history at Oxford University, and she makes it really interesting and exciting. And I think that's a fantastic skill for educators to be able to be have deep knowledge, but also to make it really accessible. The second thing is that, of course, at the end of the First World War, there was this huge complexity but after the, you know, the, the incredible experience of that First World War, about how you 
reconstruct Europe? Um, you know, a massively complex question, just like, in a sense, the, the question we've been focusing on in education today. And I think working through that complexity, as she does, and trying to understand that complexity has been really, really interesting to read again. And then thirdly, of course, they got it wrong because the Treaty of Versailles led directly in some ways to the Second World War. And so I think what that teaches you is that history teaches no lessons at all, unfortunately, and that we have to live in the present. And I think it goes back to another of my points, really, uh, in our discussion is that, you know, the past is the past. It's a fascinating thing to look at and to learn from. Brilliant when it's it's communicated in the way that you, you see it in a great work of history. But we have to live in the now and in the present. And if we want to create the great education system in Wales that I think everybody involved in the education system in Wales is keen to do, then this issue of poverty and its impact on attainment is one that we must grasp uh, and face up to, not through looking backwards, but by looking forwards. Fantastic. And do you have a recommendation for something our listeners can try? I think it's listening to learners because it's back again to this whole thing, if you like, about attendance. We're just about to start a piece of research here that I'm going to be leading from Cardiff Met, working with one of our local authorities, Ron the Kalantav, to see if we can get a better understanding about the figures, about the stats around attendance and do it through qualitative research. And, you know, the most difficult part of that is going to be reaching those young people who are actually not coming back into the system or are coming back into the system then disappearing again and talking to their families and to the professionals who are trying to work with them, youth workers and family engagement officers. But I think it's going to be a really important part of that research that we do listen to them. Why is it that they have this aversion at the moment to re-enter education? And, you know, organisations like the Child Poverty Action Group are very, very strong on this and the Children's Commission has been as well that we have a tendency in the focus that we have on learner voice, I don't think we do it intentionally, to listen to the most motivated, to listen to those who have the most to say, rather than to listen to those who have the least to say and get the least opportunities to speak up. And I don't think schools do that intentionally. I think that's just the way that it presents itself, that the type of children who end up on school councils and who end up talking, as it were, to teachers and Estin inspectors and so forth, tend to be from a particular type of background or have a particular type of motivation. And I would encourage teachers to be talking to those who we hear the least. What would excite them? What are they looking for that would really switch them on to education and enable them to achieve their potential? Um, I think there are fantastic opportunities there to be listening to learners and to really sort of acting upon the kind of things that they're telling us. David, thank you for your generosity in sharing your vast knowledge and expertise on this topic. I'm sure we'll be inviting you back very soon. <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide. And um, we will be back with you, our listeners, in two weeks' time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. 
The special guest this episode was Professor David Egan from here at Cardiff Met, and thanks to David for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford, and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Thank you.